0: Good morning, good morning, good morning. We have a special day today. Uh, We're doing things a little bit differently uh, because my pops is in town. Can we give a hand? Uh, So today I asked him, uh, I said, can you share a word for us for 20 minutes? And then after that, uh, we're going to sing another song and... Uh, We're going to take another 20 minutes to, I'm going to interview him. Uh, There's a lot of things that I want you all to know uh, about my dad and, you know, he's not going to get to share it all, but specifically because of the topic uh, that we've been talking about throughout the entire summer and just brought a close last week about being on mission, uh, my dad is one of the people that I admire when it comes to being on mission and You'll hear more about that in the interview, but for those of you that don't know, my father has been pastoring. He planted a church in Sunset Park uh, before it was cool neighborhood with Industry City and uh, all the things going on there now when it was gang-ridden, drug-ridden 35 years ago. Uh, Him and my mom uh, felt called to live in and plant uh, in Sunset Park, and that church is still going strong today. It's a church I grew up in, the church really, that's my home church. And uh, the the many of the things that I uh, am thankful for today are because of uh, my dad and my mom. So I'm really excited that you all get to hear just a taste of what I got to grow up with. But just a little bit about my dad. Uh, he is a bishop. He oversees just in the tri-state area over 100 churches. In the United States, hundreds of churches he oversees. Um, And his network, uh, like I said, he has been pastoring for 35 years now, is a prolific author after service. uh, There will be a table set up, and my man Garvey right here, Garvey just wave. he will be selling my dad's books at the table. So uh, if you want to just get to read some of the things that he has written about that comes out of his ministry, his love for the word and for God, you can do that after service Be right next to where the security guard is sitting. There will be a table uh, set up there where you can get a book. Uh, But I don't want to take up too much. I mean, uh, other people call him bishop. Some people call him pastor. Some people call him Joe. uh, But I get to introduce him today as dad. So dad, why don't you come up? We're really excited to have you with us.
1: Well, it's a great joy for me. I'm so proud of Justin and, and Heather and uh, my two grandboys there, because they're taking the mantle, too, so we always think generationally, and uh, Justin has always been an awesome leader, just an amazing uh, son, and uh, for each of my children, I disciple them differently. With him, I knew to focus more on leadership and John Maxwell and that kind of thing. My son, Jason, I focused more on apologetics, so I just had a sense what their trajectory was gonna be, and uh, just an amazing apostolic pastor. That's really what his calling is. Uh, an entrepreneur, someone who could do business and uh, you know, church equally as well, which is very rare in this world. I've seen pastors try to get involved in business and it's usually a disaster. So <laughs> I'm really proud of him and, and I'm so thankful to be here. Um, does that wonderful introduction cut into my 20 minutes? All right, all right, I'm just making sure, you know. Here I submit to my son. I'm not the boss here, so, you know, I'm trying to be a good dad here. Uh, I know my place, though. So let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you'd help us understand the things concerning your word and your story. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, and so I always pray about what to share, and I've never taught this before. I just felt a, uh, you know, prophetic unction on on this, and I had no idea that you guys were dealing with evangelism and mission because this is perfect. Uh, what I want to talk to you about today is the story. Someone say the story. the story. What is the story? Well, my objective today for you is to communicate the big story of God's. Redemption, especially as his redemptive history for humanity. And while I'm sharing, I want you to note six key points or six questions to ask yourself that should be explained in the midst of this message. The first question is What is the common thread of the historical biblical narrative of redemption? What is the thread that you see that's common in what I'm going to share? Number two What were the consequences of the fall? of humankind? Number three, what are the key players of redemptive history? What are some of the major figures that will help connect you to the big story? Number four, why is it important for each believer to easily communicate the main essence of the story? You need to know the story in order to be a person that's sent on mission from God. And then here's another question, two more questions. You can listen to this online, so don't worry about writing all this down. How does your story fit with his big story? And last, in light of the story, what is the primary mission that you should have in life or the mission of the church? So I knew all, I wrote that all down and had that. Before I knew what you guys are dealing with, so I believe this is a confirmation of what God is taking this great church to. And so before we get into the story, let's just look at some illustrations so it would help you frame it and understand what I'm talking about here. How many like movies? Let me see your hands. All right, there's a few of you who are nerds or whatever, but you don't like movies. (laughs) I love movies. That may not sound spiritual, but I love movies, and my wife hates movies. And I think God put me with the right person, because I'd be watching movies too much, I think. <laughs> so uh, uh, I can't even take her out to a movie. I have maybe two or three in the last, like, ten years, I think. So, but in every movie, there is a main plot and a subplot, correct? So the subplot sometimes is so compelling... Perhaps it has to do with romance, conflict between two characters, financial disaster or death, whatever it is. But the subplot can be so compelling that you dive into the subplot and forget about what the movie's about, correct? That's what's happened with a lot of believers. We don't know the big story, but we focus on subplots, even though they're important. Here's another illustration. Do we have any mechanics here, car mechanics, or someone who knows how to fix a car? Okay, we got one. Most of you all like me, not good with my hands. More conceptual. We have two people. All right, I'm not talking about toy cars. I mean real cars. (laughs) So in order for you to fix a car, you have to know how all the parts work together. Correct? If you don't know the concept of the engine, you won't know how to diagnose what the problem is. So you may just know how to fix one part But if that's all you know, you may mess up another part if it has nothing to do with the root of the problem. And so it's like understanding how a car engine works. How about a GPS? A GPS is only good if you put in the destination, right? So in order for you to know your primary purpose and know your destination, you need to know the big story. Say it again, big story. Basically, If we look at church history, we look at the scriptures. Uh, When you get a chance, examine Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 13. You look at Stephen and you look at the sermon of Saul, who was later called Paul the Apostle. And you will see how the early church was immersed in the story. When they preached, they gave a panoramic view of redemptive history. Now, when we think of the story, there are three expressions of the story. The first and most important expression is the Christological expression or examining how Jesus fits in the story. The second is not as important, but incredibly important, and that is the story of the kingdom of God. And third, in the order of importance, is the story of redemption. In that order, it's important. The most important thing is seeing Jesus and everything in the Bible. Second thing, his kingdom. Third is how we fit in through salvation. All aspects of the story can be preached differently. I could preach a different message, but it's all part of the same story. It integrates and uh, weaves itself together, and we had time we could do all that. But today I'm just going to focus on the third aspect, and that is the story of redemption. And as I said, the early church leaders were immersed in Scripture and knew the story Uh, Many believers only have a fragmented understanding of the Bible. They just have a few pet scriptures. They lean on, you know, on healing or prosperity or peace, Uh, or maybe they understand the last six hours of Jesus' life or his death, burial, and resurrection, but they don't know the whole story. And so my job today is to help you, uh, even to compel and encourage you to know more than just the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but understand the big story that Jesus came in as the culmination. Otherwise, you won't understand fully the gospel message. And uh, I tell people sometimes, even if you've been a believer for many years, it's helpful to get a children's story Bible, believe it or not, a picture Bible, and just read that thing through a few times, that'll help you understand the story almost easier than any other thing you can do because it's all done in pictures and it's just amazing. So it's important to know the context. And so uh, what I want to do is I'm going to go quickly. I'm going to have to quote a bunch of scriptures and give some interpretation to it on the spot because I want to get this done, uh, you know, in the next 10 or 15 minutes. And so when we think about the story, of course, we start with Genesis 1 where it tells us after God created the heavens and the earth, it says in verse 26 that he made man in his own image and in his own likeness. Then it tells us that after he made man in his own image and in his own likeness, and he gave them a commandment. In verse 28, it tells us that he told Adam, and by implication Eve, the first husband and wife of the world, he said to them to bear fruit, which means have children, multiply which means think generationally because they didn't have one child yet and he said multiply and then he said to replenish the earth subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so what was he saying there he was telling Adam and Eve I want you to cultivate the earth I want you to leave the safe place of the garden of Eden and I want you to go where it's unknown and I want you to bring my glory my covenant my word to every aspect of culture So from the beginning, the initial call of God's people was called the cultural mandate. It was never just about a building on Sunday. It was about filling the earth and bringing the knowledge of God to every aspect of life. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve fell into sin. We find that in Genesis 3, verse 1 to 8. They took of the fruit of the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil, and God had to bring a judgment upon them. When you look at the judgment, you will find that individual sin has what's called cosmic implications or consequences. There's no such thing as just affecting yourself. You affect everything around you. You affect the atmosphere in your house, your job, everything by what you do. So when Adam and Eve sinned, there was a geological consequence. That is to say, it affected the ground. God said to Adam thorns and thistles are going to come up now out of the ground. There was a vocational consequence because he said, when you work, you're going to work by the sweat of your brow. That means it's now going to be difficult. There was a relational consequence because he told uh, Eve, he said, your desire is going to be for your husband and he will rule over you. And then he also said, In pain, you're going to give birth to children, so there was a marital, a child uh, uh, issue there, but in general, because they were a family, it means that there was a judgment on human relationships, so that human relationships were going to be a strain moving forward. Uh, we see that there was a zoological consequence because he told the serpent that from now on, you're going to crawl on your so belly. So that means the whole animal kingdom was affected by sin. And last but not least, they were thrown out of the garden. An angel of God stopped them from coming back. So their access to God was affected, which means that there was a spiritual consequence, and that spiritual consequence re- resulted in them going back to the dust of the ground, God said, so there was a biological consequence. Instead of living forever, they were now going to have a limited lifespan that was cut down to 70 or 80 years by the time we got to Psalm 90, the Song of Moses. And so we see that there were cosmic implications, which means that when Christ came, there was also going to be cosmic implications. It's never just about individual sin or individual sinners. But Jesus ultimately came to reconcile the world or the whole created order back to himself, which is going to culminate in his second coming. How many understand the story so far? And the first person he was able to work with was Abraham. Abraham. He said to Abraham in Genesis 12, I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and you all the families of the earth will be blessed, showing that the major way he was going to get the gospel out was through families, through reproducing children that serve and fear God. And then he says in 17, and of course by implication spiritual children, In chapter 17, then he said, you're no longer going to be called Abe, but Abraham, because I'm now making you a father of many nations, out of your loins is going to come a seed who is going to inherit all the promises. And then he said in chapter 22, your seed is going to possess the gates of its enemies. The gates, Jesus reiterated in Matthew 16, as the last Adam, he said to his followers, I'm going to call you. Uh, the ecclesia, that's a whole loaded statement there, the church, and he said, this is your mission, you are going to assail the gates, the gates of hell, that was the political economic powers, that was like the White House or City Hall of their day, the gates, the gates of hell will not prevail. And so as the last Adam, he was carrying out the promise to the seed of Abraham, where God said to Abraham in Genesis 22, 17 and 18, you will possess the gates, meaning we're called to all of culture, not just to a building on Sunday. And then we see that Abraham had 12 sons, they be, uh, sorry, one son that resulted in 12 sons through Jacob, his grandson. They became a nation. They went into bondage, and there was a leader named Moses, and God used Moses to deliver the children of Israel out of slavery. And Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 18 that there's going to arise a prophet just like me, and you must listen to him, and those who don't listen to him will be cut off from among the people. Who is he talking about? Well, one of the judgments that God brought was to Satan in Genesis 3.15, and he said to Satan, because you've done this, one of the things he said, I'm going to put hatred between you and the woman, and Your seed and her seed. And he said that her seed, meaning Mary, some believe it's Israel, the seed of the woman, Galatians 4.4, Jesus. He said that seed of the woman is going to crush your head. But you're just going to bruise his heel, meaning temporarily you'll affect his walk. That's the crucifixion. And so that prophet was the seed who was going to come to crush the head of Satan, and Moses warned them and said, he who doesn't listen to him is going to be cut off from amongst his people. And that's what happened when some of the Jews didn't believe. They were cut off, and God took the kingdom from them and built it on a new nation. And then we find that after Moses came Joshua. The Hebrew word for Joshua, Yehoshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. Uh, The English word is Joshua, And the Greek uh, uh, rendition of it is Jesus. Joshua brought the people into the promised land. We see that in the book of Joshua. Type and shadow of the seed. You see the story, the common thread that was to come. And after Joshua were the judges and then Samuel and Saul and the kings. But finally... After falling into sin over and over again, being rebuked, corrected, put into slavery and bondage, the judges, the kings were all messing up. Finally, God found a king, a man named David, who was a man after His own heart. And because he had a heart after God, God promised him in Second Samuel chapter seven, verse thirteen and fourteen, and all of Psalm eighty-nine. He said. Through your seed, I'm going to establish your kingdom forever. It will last as long as the sun. We find that Jesus came from David. The seed of Abraham came through David. And he, the root and offspring of David, became the king of kings whose kingdom will never end. And we jump ahead. About 500 years to around 745 A.D. to Isaiah the prophet who prophesied of the seed of David. And he said he's going to be born of a virgin. That's Isaiah 7.14. And then he said this person that was going to be born of a virgin, chapter 9, he said, will be called mighty God, El Gabor, the champion, everlasting father, the son, the prince of peace. And it says, of the increase of his peace in his kingdom shall be no end. But he said, this is how it's going to be done. Chapter 53, he said, he will be wounded for our transgressions, punished for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his wounds we would be healed. And then it said, he would see the travail of his soul and see his reward. By implication, there would be suffering before he saw the result of his suffering. That was talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Jumping ahead from Isaiah, we're going to go to John the Baptist because Isaiah chapter 40 prophesied that before the seed came, there would be a voice crying out in the wilderness saying, Prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord would be, of course, the seed, Jesus. John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, and they said to him, Who are you? And he said, well, I'm not that prophet. I'm not the Messiah. Then who are you, it asks, as recorded in John 1. And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God. He said, he must increase. I must decrease. I can't even untie his shoes. This is the guy you're to look to. And he pointed to Jesus, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, that was a, a nuclear bomb being dropped because by implication, soon the Levitical priesthood would change. Uh, uh, soon there'd be no more animal sacrifices because Jesus, as the Lamb of God, will fulfill the whole law of Moses and Levitical system. And Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. And it tells us, as summarized in First Corinthians 15, that after living a perfect, righteous life, he died our sins according to the scriptures. What scriptures? Everything, the whole story culminates and points to this. First Corinthians 15, later uh, revised and simplified and and expanded actually into what's called the Apostles' Creed. was something handed down by the apostles. The church was devoted to the apostles doctrine it tells us in Acts 2 so this is a summary of what Paul got from that and he said Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures he was buried and three days later he rose from the dead according to the scriptures and he appeared to uh, Cephas and all the apostles and to more than 500 and then least of all last of all rather he appeared to me meaning Paul who's the least of all because I'm a greater sinner than everyone else and so Jesus died rose And what was the result of that? Ephesians 2 tells us that when he rose, we rose. And he destroyed the enmity that was against us, the law written in ordinances. And those who were far away, meaning the Gentiles, those who were outside of the covenant of Israel, outside of the commonwealth of Israel, those who had no hope, who were lost and without God, those who were not physically of Abraham, he said, I am now turning to them because The Jewish leaders rejected me, and now anyone who believes in me, whether they're Jew or Gentile, it's not going to be a new Israel, uh, a new expression of Israel. He says, they're going to be raised as one new man, a new species of humanity, if you will, a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So when Jesus rose, everyone who believed in Jesus, whether you're Jew by birth, whether you're Gentile rose in Christ, became one new man. And Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, he said these words. He said, you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's in Acts 1.8. And you will be my witnesses. Most people don't understand it. They think after the Spirit comes on them, that means they're supposed to stay on the ground soaking. Or they're supposed to just speak in other languages. And again, they're focusing on something different. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, the main reason why the Spirit is to come on you, to fill you, is so that you'll be my witnesses. For what? To carry the story. Where? Not in a building. He said, first I want you to go to Jerusalem. In other words, the gospel is to be planted in your community. Jerusalem represents A place where you're familiar with everybody. It's your culture. Uh, Maybe in those days everybody looked like each other. And Jerusalem obviously was a Jewish city. So it represents uh, a, a familiar place. So you start first with those you know. You start first with your friends, your family, people that are on your job, your block, and those that you're familiar with in the culture. But he didn't stop there. He said, I want you not only to plant the gospel in Jerusalem, I want you to plant it in Judea. By implication, you're not just planting a church, and you're not just planting a community. You are now planting a movement that reproduces after its own kind. In other words, every church should plant other churches. Every leader should produce other leaders. And we should constantly be reproducing, sending out blessing, and seeing the whole Earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He continues, and now he's really challenging. He says in Acts 1, 8, and 9, now I want you to go not only to Judea, by implication, I want your church to have regional influence, not just local, which is apostolic, if you want to use that term. But then he said, I want you to go to Samaria. Well, that was really pushing it, because... The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. All you got to do is go to John chapter 4, and when Jesus was ministering to the woman at the well, he basically had a conversation that showed that there were two different religions. She said, well, you Jews say you're supposed to worship at this mountain, and we say we're going to worship at that mountain. Basically, they were a hybrid. They were half Jew and half Assyrian. If you really want to look into it, it's the Second, second Kings chapter sixteen and seventeen. You could see the history there, and uh, the king of Assyria took Jews, brought them to Assyria, took Assyrians, put them in Samaria, and now you had people that were half Jewish, half Samaritan. So what was Jesus saying? I want you to go to people that you don't like. I want you to go to people with ideological differences. I want you to go to people that didn't vote politically like you. I don't want you to fight on Facebook over stupid things. I don't want you to get caught up in subplots, but focus on the story. Focus on the kingdom, not this kingdom, but that kingdom. That's the story. And so he said, I want you to go to Samaria. That was really Probably offensive and shocking to them. As a matter of fact, they didn't obey that. They just stayed in Jerusalem. God had to allow a persecution that actually resulted in them sending a church out to Samaria, and then also Antioch and beyond because if you don't send them, then God will send them. Basically, that's how it is. God will shake up a church if they're not doing the job, if they want to stay in their own comfort zone, if they want to just minister to people that that are in their community and look like them and talk like them and, you know, have the same culture. Well, God's going to shake it up because he doesn't want a homogeneous church. He wants a heterogeneous church. He wants a diverse church. He wants a church where people don't look like each other, have different languages, and even send the church out to cultures and nations where we have to learn their culture from scratch and learn their language, get in someone else's universe, a fusion of horizons, God is a multi-universal God, created every aspect of culture and humanity, and He gets bored when all we want to do is play church with people that look like us in our own community. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I look at this church and it's a reflection of the kingdom, which I'm excited about, just like our church, uh, Res Brooklyn. So. When we understand, we're called to go to Samarita. Samaritan, There are people who have lifestyles that we don't agree with, people who have language we don't agree with. That's not an excuse. Jesus said, I want you to love them. Even as it was taboo for Jesus to speak to the woman of Samaria, number one, she was a woman. Jews didn't have any dealings with women. They were separate. He broke that taboo. Number two, she had a different religion. He broke that taboo. And number three... He loved her and took time out for her. In other words, he attempted to humanize her instead of categorize her. And that's what the church has fallen into today. We've categorized those who don't agree with us, and we've fallen into the same game the media plays because they need to do that to sell, to get sponsors, to make money. The church should be above that. It should transcend that game. We should be about the kingdom, not about this culture. And finally, he said, I want you to go to the ends of the earth. Now, that was even more drastic because he was saying, not only are you going to go to Samaritan, the Samaritans at least had some kind of biblical history that was in common with the Jews. But now I want you to go to the total goyim. The pagans, the polytheists, the people that worship many gods, those who sacrificed children to Molech. I want you to go to those who worshiping devils. I want you to go to those who had idols all over. I want you to go to those who worshiped Caesar. I want you to go to the ends of the earth. Man, not only did that challenge them culturally, but it implied that they had to reproduce leaders real fast. Because twelve apostles could have never went to all the nations and implied a movement, not just the church. We're called to plant movements, not just churches. And finally, as we understand this, Paul the Apostle brings out the summary of the big story. What is that big story? He said, in the fullness of time, Ephesians 1:10. I am going to bring all things together in heaven and earth in Christ. And he said, in whom is your inheritance? In other words, that's your inheritance, the big story. Based on him who predestines everything according to the counsel of his will. That is to say, if you want to get with God, get with his story. And his wind will blow on the big story, not on just your story. He's not into individualism. He's not into individual Christianity. He's not into just your mission statement. Your mission statement is only valid if it's in line with his mission. That's the only thing that matters. And so as I wrap this up, what are some practical takeaways Remember I asked you to think of six things as I was speaking what is the common thread here can anybody guess common thread the seed jesus it's all about him my son read colossians 1:15 to 19 what were the consequences of the fall everything right so that means god wants to use you whether you're a pastor or a plumber, to bring things under his reign. We can't just raise up pastors. We need to raise up and send out plumbers, politicians, economists, educators, parents. We need to equip everything so that the church gathered on Sunday becomes the church scattered on Monday. You bring the church everywhere you are The building is not the church. The fact that we say, I'm going to church, means that we don't get it yet. You are the church. The fact that we look at a building and we say, that's a nice church. That's not a church. That's a building that for two hours on Sunday houses the church. We have to change our language when we get with his story. We're called to all of culture, not just Sunday morning. We're not just called to the church place, but we're called to the workplace. The church gathered has to be equipped on Sundays so that we can be scattered and do the mission on Monday representing him. And so as I wrap this up I want to make sure that you think about reading Acts chapter 7 and 13. You'll see an incredible panoramic view of the story by two different people, Stephen and Paul. One represented the call to the Jews, the other represented a call to the Gentiles. The fact that they both told the story showed that it was expected of everyone to be immersed in scripture and especially be able to recite the story. Especially nowadays when people don't have a Judeo-Christian worldview in this culture, it's a postmodern culture, you can't just tell them about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You have to start with the fall. You have to give the story, even if you don't have to give every element that I did today, but some kind of basics starting from the beginning. I believe one other thing you could do is to practice telling the story in small groups when you're with your friend. Recite it. Try to say as much as you remember. Um, Tell the story or share the story of those who don't know God. And uh, last, as I already said, change your conception of church. It's not just coming on Sunday to get fed. It's coming to be equipped so you could go out and share the gospel. God bless you.
0: Isn't that awesome? We're going to do the interview now. Uh, So, Phil, if you can help with the chairs. Uh, you guys can see uh, where I get my love of scripture and God. It's quite evident. Uh, but I want to make sure that everybody kind of gets an overview. that My dad doesn't just preach about this. It's just, it isn't just something that he teaches, but it's really something that he lives. And so uh, growing up, I got to witness how he lived that. So I'm just going to ask him some questions, uh, and you'll be able to hear from those answers just some of the ways that we can... Practically live this out, whether uh, it is parenting, like you said, or just going to the store, uh, or living in your home. So here you go, Dad. I'll take out some of my questions, and we'll get started. So the first thing is, you know, I'm a parent now. Uh, obviously, you have two grandkids because of me, and uh, and Heather. She had something <laughs> yes, to yes, and Heather. She had a small part to play in this. <laughs> Uh, and one thing that I have, me Heather and I talk about a lot is how are we going to raise our kids, and a lot of the things that I uh, realize is how intentional you and mom were with raising not just me, but all of your kids, With the things that you did. So living on mission for you wasn't just with others, I think it was very much for you living on mission in your home. Uh, so if you can give us, what are some of the things that you guys did that were intentional uh, to live on mission, teach this to your kids?
1: Not to hawk my book, but... Walk in generational blessing on my website. My name, JosephMaterial.org gets into all of that. But quickly, we always prioritize dinner. Uh, we prioritize family time. I think uh, most of the time Wednesday nights. Uh, I cut back on my travels when the kids were born and turned down a lot of invitations because my first primary thing was, was the family. And even the way we planned the church, we didn't do meetings during the week, maybe one uh, meeting, a prayer meeting, but most of the time every night I was at home unless I had a leaders meeting. So I made sure that I wasn't like some of these pastors that sacrificed their children on the altar of ministry. And maybe the most important thing is I was crazy at home, as you know. We were not religious. (laughs) I believe you have to have fun. With your kids, because they will have an emotional connection, not just the spiritual, mm, the emotional yeah. connection, so that they'll want to be home, they'll yeah. want to hang out, they'll enj- they'll connect God and and pastoring to fun and craziness, mm-hmm. and that's what you know my my goal was. And of course, you have the other things. Uh, my fir- my first thing was getting uh, all my kids to memorize scripture. I got them mm-hmm. to memorize the Beatitudes, Ten Commandments, Psalm twenty three. Uh, John 3, 16, Romans 10, 9, and 10, all the primary passages so that by the time they were 10 years old, they really they could probably recite it and the Apostles' Creed. I don't know if I mentioned that. Then by the time they were 11 to 12, I started applying it by teaching them how to live it out in school. Some of it was apologetics. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it was what teenagers deal with. And we'd use books by Josh McDowell. And one other thing I did was I... Revised uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, I'm not sure if I did that with you, but I did it with uh, the last two, and I had them memorize uh, and understand the catechism. Well, they didn't memorize it, but I went through it several times. It was mm-hmm. about 180 questions, so it got them to know the story. Yeah. So that's another thing we
0: did. Uh, so you don't have to revise your own catechism. There is a catechism called the New Catechism by Keller and Redeemer. They put out that four kids that you can read with your kids or your family at home... Um, so what do you have to say about, uh, families that say, well, my, we'll get discipled at church, but they don't feel it's their responsibility to do it at home.
1: Yes. Well, the primary responsibility of discipleship is with the parents. Uh, it tells us in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse six to nine, diligently teach your children. And it's not just a Bible study. It says, talk to them about the word when you're walking along the way, uh, you know, put it on the home, the doorstep, on the doorpost. Uh, In other words, the way Jesus and the Hebraic method of discipleship was a lifestyle. Christianity was never called an institution. It was a way. The Hebrew mindset was a way. And so discipleship is really living out your faith in front of your kids. And as I'm driving them to school, I remember I would make sure that I did breakfast for you guys, Mm -hmm. not mom. I drove you guys to school Mm -hmm. because that 15 minutes I used to disciple you guys, I used it to ask questions, uh, to me it was integrating every aspect of my life, not just a Wednesday night Bible study, with uh, doing life with my kids and sharing Christ with them.
0: It is true, he made us breakfast and lunch every day, and he is as good a cook as I am, so it was quite incredible.
1: I'm a great boiler of <laughs> eggs. <Yeah. laughs>
0: You know, some of the memories I have is uh, we would read biographies of revivalists. You know, before I would go to sleep, we would read God's generals or, like you said, memorizing scripture every morning before going to school. We would do family devotions, uh, you know, in the car, all these things. So it wasn't a once a week thing for you. It was a a very much every day we had conversations about our prayer life, how we were reading scripture on our own. These were very intentional. It wasn't just like... You were making it up. You had a plan, obviously, for us. Uh, So I appreciate that. I'm going to move on. One other thing
1: I'll say is in this day and age with parents are so biblically illiterate, the church has to step in Mm. and provide discipleship because parents are coming in. They don't know anything, so we can't expect them to disciple their kids. It takes years for them to unload some of the baggage, Mm -hmm. some of the generational habit patterns. Mm -hmm. uh, And you have a lot of single moms, some single dads, who don't know, or it's almost impossible for them to properly get a handle on what a boy needs. So that's where the church is. Uh, uh, the pastoral epistles are called the family texts because uh, older men are called fathers, older women, mothers, younger women are called sisters or daughters. In other words, the f- church is a family of families, and wherever that family's weak, we need to come alongside of them, mm. provide big brothers, spiritual fathers, and help. These uh, widows, orphans, and others who have broken families, help them with their kids, in other words.
0: The widows today would be the single moms, and the orphans would be, you know, growing up in a broken home, essentially.
1: Right, father abandonment, yeah. Yeah.
0: That's great. Thank you uh, for—because the church is a family, and you need to remember that we also need to provide that support. So the second question I have— is you won a lot of your neighbors to Christ over the years we lived on the same block since I was two years old so we've lived there a very long time and over the last three decades you have seen several of our neighbors i I, I can't keep count at this point many are serving God today in different churches um, how did you do that what you know what steps what ways uh, you know this, this didn't happen overnight so what was that like
1: well I just never let anybody know I was a pastor. I don't know if they found out I was. Just hanging out with them. Invite them over to the house. Invite them in the backyard for a barbecue. Go to their parties. Uh, and then especially your friends, Jason's friends, uh, was able to you know bring them in the house and just be a, a, a you know fun with them. And eventually I just we would pray. Me and Mommy would pray. And when the right time came, I'd just, boom. I'd go for it. And uh, I would share the gospel. But it's important to earn your stripes. Don't just share the gospel when you meet a neighbor for the first time. It's good. Walk life, do life with them. And at the right time, God will either give you an opening when there's a crisis. Recently, unfortunately, someone on my block had a horrible crisis. I don't even want to mention what it was. And, you know, I got back from being out of state. And at 10 o'clock at night, I saw the light was on. I took a chance, rang the bell. One of the hardest things I ever did, I was sweating, wondering if I was overstepping because it was a horrible tragedy. And they were joyed that I rang the bell. We cried on each other's shoulders. And I was able, through conversation, organically, share the love of Jesus. And they started asking me questions about, you know, the church, the Bible, and everything. So you just have to be there when there's a crisis, uh, if it's at all possible, and uh, just be a good neighbor Uh, Unfortunately, I'm so busy, and I do a lot of traveling now. I don't have as much time as I used to, so I'm not the perfect neighbor now, but uh, when I was able to, I I tried to do whatever I could. Uh,
0: One thing I specifically remember is whenever we had family time on Sunday, you made us pray for friends. So you would tell us to pray for our friends that we were hanging out with, and every week, you know, you would ask us, all right, who are your friends? Can you pray for them? Uh, And that was something that I think made me constantly aware of, okay, I need to bring my neighbors to Christ and share with them uh, that I helped. So uh, like you said, prayer was uh, a big part of that, uh, I think, and being intentional about waiting for the boom opportunity to go in there. (laughs) Uh, My next question, you've also successfully witnessed to complete strangers. Uh, We would be at a restaurant and all of a sudden my dad is leading our waitress or waiter to Christ. (laughs) Uh, or, you know, at a mall and the retail person asking us if we need help is all of a sudden crying and uh, wanting to come to Christ. So tell us about that. What it, What is that like? I think that's a very different process than the neighbor process.
1: Yeah. Um, I believe strongly in what's been termed prophetic evangelism. It's a little more popular today than it was in those days. But I just read the New Testament and saw how Jesus would know what was going on intuitively inside of people's lives and get a download and then somehow share it. It wasn't the King James English or Jewish, whatever. And, <laughs> say it Lord! You know, that's the crazy way to do it. That's not you see where you, I get some
0: of my bad habits from, but go ahead.
1: That is not how you win friends and influence people.
0: Uh-huh. But
1: you just organically believe that you're going to have a conversation that's going to lead to you being able to share what God has laid on your heart. Whether you even say it was God or not, but you get to share it. Uh, And so an example of that is one time, uh, Mommy and I were coming home from vacation, and uh, Mommy waits to the last minute a lot of times, and uh, we were already almost late for the plane, and then she said, oh, there's a store. Uh, Please, can we stop there? I want to shop. There's some good uh, bathing suits or whatever it was. I don't remember what it was. It was somewhere in uh, Naples, Florida. And I said, what? You're kidding me. How can we stop now. And I said, all right, I'll give you 10 minutes. That's it. All right. So we ran in there and I was really flustered. Some marital and, uh, counseling going on now. I went well. in there <laughs> and, uh, and all of a sudden I saw this beautiful African-American girl about 18 or 19 and God started giving me downloads for her. And I said, oh my God, this is unbelievable. So then I said, all right, I'm going to have to somehow segue this into a conversation And basically, when she came up to me, saw me looking around, I was looking around near her, so she would come up to me and say, do you need any help? That was it. Then I started asking her, do you live around here? Yeah. What do you guys do on Friday nights? Then she started sharing with me things that confirmed what I was getting. Next thing you know, I was starting to share with her what God was showing me about her. And she started bawling and crying. Uh, We're hugging in in the retail store. I gave her my card, and I said, if you ever want to leave call me, and I knew in my spirit she was going to call. Three months later, she called, and uh, I said, okay, come, and we put her up in someone's house, and uh, when she came, she found From, out Florida, she was, to York,
0: she from came Florida to New, New York. From Florida to
1: New York. She stayed. We put her in someone's house in our church, and uh, wound up, she found out she was pregnant uh, around the time she came, and uh, a couple in our church wound up adopting the baby, the baby is now 14 years old, serving God. They now live in Florida. She's serving God. She became part of the uh, special forces. And, uh, you know, she was in our church for several years, and we just discipled her. But uh, if I put my foot down and, and said, you know, I don't want to be in this store and had a bad attitude, this child's trajectory would be forever changed. This family's trajectory would be mm-hmm. forever changed. So that's just one illustration that I could think of.
0: So a lot of us sense the Holy Spirit leading us to go talk to a stranger, but there's a lot of nerves, a lot of anxiety, a lot of uh, things that get in the way. How do you overcome that? To you know, it sounds like you still deal with that every time this comes up.
1: Yeah, I deal with it. There are people that I should have talked to that still haunt me today because I chickened out. To be honest, I still remember a girl in Toys R Us. 15 years ago that I was supposed to talk to, and it haunts me. I don't know what would have happened if I talked to her. Uh, I don't always do it. Uh, I do it a lot, but not all the time. And, but one thing that helps me is everybody is in pain. Everybody's looking for help. And God always lays someone on your heart who's open, or at least will be open if not at that point. And just try to get a, a sense in the spirit about them. And you don't need specifics. Like, you don't need their social security number and their name and all that. You know, you got these people on television. Just a little thing I found, like, hey, uh, you, know, you know, God, I just want to tell you, God really cares about you. I feel like you're lonely. Very general things like that. Or you're in fear. Just to them, it's like giving them water in a desert. And it just opens up the floodgates. So you just get little general things. And sometimes you'll get more and more specific things. But everybody's in pain. Everybody needs God. And your fear is really something that is not warranted because people generally want to hear, want to talk to someone who's interested in them. One of the things I learned a long time ago is if you want to have a good relationship with someone, let them talk about themselves. Focus on their story, and then you could get God's story in. Awesome.
0: That's, that's really good advice. Uh, the last question that we'll leave us with is uh, something that, you know, I vividly remember in my childhood was you and Mom opening up the house for people to come uh, live with us. I mean, we had everybody you can imagine. We had single moms come with their kids. We had, uh, you know, teenagers come in, you know, midlife crisis people come in. I don't remember a time in our life where we didn't have some – person living with us. Um, I think there's two things that are incredible. One, nothing ever happened to the kids, so, uh, you know, no, nothing improper happened when any of these sort of strangers coming to live with us. Uh, two, a lot of the people that you did take in, uh, you, see, you have seen incredible fruit for them. I think it is a lost art of hospitality uh, today to really open up your home to people. So what was that like? I'm sure there was fear with that, you know, uh, or there may have not been. Uh, and it was a constant thing. If you could just share with us about that.
1: Well, they were afraid of me more than I was afraid of them. So that helped. <laughs> but uh, they knew how protective I was of my kids. But, you know, you, obviously you have to have discernment. You gotta have a sense in the spirit that you're supposed to bring them in. It's one thing to have someone over for dinner, another thing to have them live. So uh, I would just try to be cautious and, and have an idea of their background before you do that. And uh, if you don't have kids, it's not as necessary—at least young kids. But that being said, yeah, uh, one of the requirements for being a spiritual leader is shown in First Timothy three, and it says to be hospitable, and that means again, it's a family of families. We're called to do life, and uh, in the gangs, they are 24/7, seven days a week. Church once a week on Sunday for two hours, and if that's all they have, they're going to go back to the gangs because Christianity is not a Sunday experience. That's American Christianity. Sunday is is just one time that we can have point of contact. So I'm really convinced in the way we try to lead our church is that people need to just be hospitable, do life with people, and uh, that we're responsible for the people that God has brought to us. And oftentimes it did mean bringing people in the house. I remember... Uh, some girl just was in dire straits, and, you know, she needed some intense ministry, and we had to live with us for, seven, for six months. And that girl became a, a woman, and her son became a close friend of yours. Uh, and um, her trajectory totally changed. Uh, you know, of course, Christian and Frankie Ochoa, and I shouldn't mention names on Facebook Live, but I don't think he'll mind. And uh, others, they become great ministers of the gospel, uh, and uh, some of them lived seven years with us, became part of the family. So I found, and in, in especially in this broken climate, that my most important title was not pastor, but dad. More than half the men and women in the church call me dad. Um, sometimes the most important thing I could do was hug some man who was abandoned by their father. And that was more important than preaching a sermon. And that brought more healing. And being a conduit of God's love was more important than preaching a nice message. And so we had to understand that part of the discipleship process was breaking broken habit patterns, some call it generational curses, but you don't just do it by prayer, you do it by reparenting, by filling in the gaps with love. You can't just say, don't do this or don't believe that. You have to give them something in its place that's better than they experienced. And the only way to do that sometimes is having them move in with you.
0: Yeah, so you said something before that it's not just physical children now, it's also spiritual children. So if you don't have physical children uh, in the kingdom of God as a family we're called to all have spiritual children, And, you know, Christian, someone he mentioned who lives with us, was a roommate of mine while I was in high school, now pastors a church in Astoria. Um, And, you know, so for you, it wasn't... And and I want to get some more wheels turning because my parents have five biological children. Uh, They took legal guardianship over two other girls, and then also Christian, my older brother, uh, who was basically adopted into the family. Uh, Because a lot of people think, you know... I, I already have one kid or I have two kids, and that's too many. How can I work with others? But uh, you guys always made it work. Whether we didn't have money or we did have money, that was never really the issue is what God was calling you to do. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. We weren't the only ones. We have a couple in our church, Maritza and Robert, who brought in so many through the foster care system, dozens, maybe 30 or more. And many have been adopted, and their lives have been changed and transformed. Uh, uh, when Lenny was living in New York, he brought people in, former gang members who tried to assassinate me um, when I was shown the cross and the switchblades. Another story. And they came up with knives. They were going to kill me at the altar said call. That's so and nonchalant. Uh, they, uh, they
0: tried to assassinate him. Everybody. Well,
1: that was there. I didn't know that until after they got saved, and they showed me their knives and guns or whatever. And they said, man, we were here to kill you, to take you out because you're preaching all over Sunset Park, and we don't like it. But they wound up getting saved that night, and Lenny took one of them in his house for three years. Um, So it was a culture in our church. Um, It was never just about a Sunday meeting. I just can't reiterate that enough.
0: Yeah, that's great. Uh, That is it for questions for me for now. Uh, Why don't we give him a warm welcome? Just thank him for coming and being with us today. Uh, I did a true son move. I asked my dad last week, like Sunday night, if he could come. He had to change his schedule to uh, be with us. Uh, so, you know, when you see him later after service, he'll stick around for a few minutes. Just please thank him, give him a hug. Our church is part of my father and my mother's legacy. Uh, and, you know, they have their legacy. They Many churches have been planted through Resurrection Churches. Many ministries have been started. Um, we get to be part of that legacy, and it's a, it's an incredible thing to be a part of the heritage of what God has been doing in New York City for a long time now. Um, And so we get to bless him for that. I'm going to invite the worship team up. Uh, We're going to close out with a song. Can I ask you all to stand with me? Before we uh, sing out with a song today, uh, I want us to just pray for my father as he's standing there. Can you just stretch forth your hands towards him with me right now? God, we thank you for... Everything that you're doing through my dad's life. Lord, we thank you that he still has so many years of ministry ahead of him, that he will pour in as a spiritual dad to pastors that you have put under him from all around the world, uh, in the U.S. and in this city. Lord, we ask that you just continue to give him strength and give him grace as he does this, that you will guide his steps and that he will be courageous and bold to continue to walk out the life that you have called him to live. In Jesus' name, Lord, we thank you for us here today, Lord. I thank you for the deposit left from him, Lord, that it would uh, fall on fertile ground and that it will produce good fruit in our lives, Lord, whether it means listening to this again or asking questions or beginning to change the culture at our home and how we live. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would begin to do that work in our lives as we sing this song, the cause of Christ, that we remember the mission that we are called to live on Every area of our life in Jesus' name. The
2: only thing amen. I want in life is to be known for loving Christ, to build his church, to love his bride, to make his name known far and wide. For this cause I live for this call.